You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. Not alone, though, for our love of the great hornbill. Uh, they're beautiful, majestic, just amazing birds. What can they teach us? They rely on the great hornbill for seed dispersal. So, if not for these birds, this tree species or, or genus of trees. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. So back to the birds. Yes? Yes! So excited for today's podcast. Uh, we get to be bird nerds today. Yay! Yeah, I know. We did the shoe bill last, so I guess we're sticking with the the obscure, weird beaks. You know, yes. with the great, the great horn bill. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, the bigger, the better, right? Yeah. <laughs> We'll get to that. Yes, 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 for sure. But yeah, these hornbills, I know it's something that we, we've tossed around the last couple of years. You know, we talk about birds. We're like, oh, what about this species? What about that species? I just go back, and, and I know we're going to kind of talk about this in depth, more of their breeding, reproductive behaviors. I remember seeing this on a nature documentary years and years and years ago. It's fascinating. This is a fascinating bird. This is a must-listen-to podcast. It is fascinating. Oh, yeah, Chris. Hornbills are incredible. And I didn't realize that there's actually 62 species of hornbills around the world, uh, 32 in Asia and 30 in Africa. And, Chris, of those 62 hornbill species, 26 of them are globally threatened or near-threatened, classified by the IUCN. So they're a really important bird to talk about because – they are facing so many hardships in the wild. No, they are for sure. I mean, it, it, it is when you, because we don't, you know, obviously there's thousands and thousands of species. And when we pick one and, and we really dive into the literature and really read about them, and then we read about their conservation story and it's, it's eye-opening, you know, the number of species. Yeah. And today, Chris and I'll be focusing a lot on the great hornbill, which is actually the largest or the heaviest of the Asian hornbills. And it's vulnerable by the IUCN. And it just really got me motivated to start talking to some of my keeper friends about hornbills because I never worked with them. I worked with citizens and owls, but I, I, I never got to work with hornbills. And immediately I thought of a good friend of mine that is going to come on as a special guest and t- talk to us all about working with the Blythe's hornbill. Um, a buddy from my zookeeping days, one of my one of my best buds. And yeah, he 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 just has a great story to tell. So stick around for that. We'll we'll get him on here real shortly because he was just so excited 
telling me his stories. I'm like, why am I going to tell your story? Like, you need to tell it because it's awesome. And then talking to John about hornbills, John was all excited. My husband, he was like, ooh, ooh, you got to do the ground hornbill. And I'm like, well, we're doing the great hornbill. He's like, no, 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 you need to do the ground hornbill. <laughs> and so it's just really, it's, it's anybody who's worked with hornbills, mm-hmm. and hopefully we'll hear from some of our listeners out there. I'm sure we have listeners that have worked with hornbills, just love them because of their looks, their personalities, uh, and of course, and by personality too, behavior. Mm-hmm. Some of just the coolest courtship and breeding behaviors that, uh, I don't know, whenever I cover a species, I, I start thinking about my own life. I'm like, huh, would my husband do that for me? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I'm sure he would. I'm sure he would. <sighs> no, they are. They're amazing birds. And just really quick this week, Ira Lynn, thank you so much. Joined us on Patreon. Again, a cup of coffee a month. It, it, it helps support us and just pushing this content out. Like we just, we are just so grateful for the support and trying to get this information out. And, you know, we're making a big push this year to, to really grow. I mean, there's tens of thousands of you out there now, and we want to get up to the hundreds of thousands and really get this conservation message out there. So thank you so much. Absolutely. We appreciate all your comments, your emails. And if you could go give us a five-star review and some nice words on iTunes, that would be awesome. We haven't had any reviews in the past couple months, so I would really appreciate it if you could uh, give us some kind words. It always keeps us motivated. And it's not about us. It actually helps our podcast get more circulation if it has higher ratings and higher reviews. And we have a really great international audience, but Chris and I have a goal this year to grow even more internationally. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So describing the Hornville, it's beautiful. It's just a beautiful looking bird, especially the great Hornbill. So, you know, you go take a shot at it and, and those, those feathers and the colors, it's just, oh, they're so gorgeous. Well, Chris, the great Hornbill is great. It, I mean, it's vividly colored. It's very easily recognized as far as its flashy features. And so before I get to what makes it the horn build, uh, the horn-like structure or helmet on top of their head, uh, I'll start with their body. And in general, their body, head, and wings are primarily black in color. The tail is also white, the tail feathers, I should say, but it has a really big, wide black band running through it. So it alternates white, black, white. And what's really cool about hornbills is they have this gland that's near their tail or their tail feathers, and it secretes oil. And the oil has a yellow, yellow, reddish color uh, to it. And so the bird will often spread this oil across its feathers when it's grooming it. So depending on the hornbill, it might have more of a yellow, red, orange variation in its beak, neck, uh, on the cask or the helmet, which I'll be talking about, but then across its tail and wing feathers. And so if you just are looking at a picture online of a great hornbill, you'll often see yellow highlights on their neck, their chest, and then definitely their wing feathers. And that's coming from these this oil that's secreted at the base of their tail. And so just beautiful, but their beak is really big. So in general, hornbills have long curved beaks that curve downwards. 
And in the great hornbill, the top beak is yellow and the bottom of the beak is white. And then around their eye is all black and they have red eyes, which are really striking. And then on the top of their beak, of their upper beak, is this helmet-like structure. It's called a cask and it's spelled C-A-S-Q-U-E, a new word for me of the week. I had not heard it called that before. But this is where the hornbills get their name from because of this characteristic helmet or cask on top of their head. And the great hornbills, I don't know, Chris, to me, it looks like a a straight banana for the most part. Yeah, it's, yeah. (laughs) And it just sits up there uh, over, basically over their their eye and then about a third of their beak and a little bit of their head and neck. So, and it's flat. Um, some of the other hornbills have different shapes. In fact, one hornbill is called actually called the rhinoceros hornbill, which is closely related to the great hornbill. Uh, one of them is called the helmeted hornbill, which is actually critically endangered because it looks more like a, a helmet that a soldier would wear. So there's different shapes to this cask and depending on the species, they're more prominent or less prominent, but the great hornbill has a very large cask, very beautiful in that yellow banana color. And the other thing that's really awesome about great hornbills is their size. They, they're beautiful. It's just a beautiful bird. They're, and they're big. They're big. So up to like over 50 inches long or 130 centimeters. So that's almost over four feet tall. Mm-hmm. Like that's their body. And then their wingspan can be 60 inches or 150 centimeters which is nearly five feet. Yeah. So this is not a small bird. This no, is not a small bird. no. I was watching a lot of videos of them online, uh, just uh, photographers and, and and filmmakers watching them fly from tree to tree. It's it's a feat. They're a big bird. Yeah. They're big. They're definitely big. And now the, the, it's interesting. We'll talk about the cask a little bit later, but it's really not that heavy. You think it would be, but it's not. And in this species, the the males are slightly larger. Now, hornbills range from Africa through Asia, and the great hornbill are found in really Southeast Asia and then parts of India. So you find them in not only India, but Bhutan, Nepal, uh, the Indonesian island of Sumatra, you know, Thailand, Vietnam, a little bit in China live in these dense evergreen forests and they can almost, they, they found them ranging as high as 2000 meters. So that's pretty high up. And obviously when we get to behavior and reproduction, but they, they like these old growth trees because it is important for, you know, their, their rituals that they do for their young. So pretty r- wide range, but it is fragmented. So, when you look at their range map in India, I mean, there's large portions of India where these birds are not found. And obviously with a lot of the deforestation that's going on in that part of the world, their territories are, are, are broken up, you know, throughout these countries. So, so a bit concerning. Yes, Chris, as you mentioned, since they live in these old growth forests, that means they're older, bigger trees. And a lot of those forests are experiencing urbanization, habitat destruction, things like that, which is having an impact on hornbills because where they nest, they tend to come back to the same tree year after year after year. 
And so if it's all of a sudden gone, that doesn't bode really well for a breeding pair. And studies have shown that the abundance of the great hornbills tends to be correlated with the density of these large old growth trees. And I think that's why we're seeing such a big decline in these species. It just, you know, they're losing habitat Mm -hmm. at alarming rates, especially in this part of the world. But this is a critical species. I mean, every species has its, its ecological niche, but this one's a big one, right? Why care? Well, yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about nutrition. They're omnivores. And so a big part of their diet is fruit. And so they're a huge seed disperser, which can help forests propagate. It can help different species of plants grow. And also hornbills will eat insects and small animals that are sometimes known as pests because they are so abundant, uh, which can help keep an ecosystem healthy because we don't want the insects destroying all the plants or uh, these other uh, these other small um, rodents or um, or lizards. So they, they have a, a really important role in the food chain as a seed disperser and then just keeping insect and pest population down. No, and I was reading because these birds are large and they, they do have large beaks that there's a certain uh, type of tree, Myristica, Myristica mm-hmm. in, in this part of the world where they rely on the great hornbill for seed dispersal. So if not for these birds, this tree species or, or genus of trees would not be, you know, able to grow and, and spread out and populate. So I know we see this with, with other species where they depend on certain animals to help it. And this mutualism, mutualistic, not behavior, but mutualistic relationship where, you know, if I provide you food and you poop out my seeds, you know, 10 kilometers away, that helps me, you know, helps me in my genetics. So again, when you start reducing these animal populations, you start affecting the food chain up and down because what, what animals depend on these trees or eat these types of leaves, what insect populations, all those things. So that's where we always have to think 360, you know, when we talk about this stuff. So and Chris, we are not alone, though, for our love of the great hornbill. Uh, they're beautiful, majestic, just amazing birds. Uh, and they're actually the state bird of Kerala and Arankala Pradesh in India. So they're recognized and adorned there as well. And so it's, uh, it's which is why people are studying them and trying to figure out how best to keep their numbers up. Right. Right. Well, we do have a special guest that has worked with hornbills. I think you want to introduce him. Yes, Chris. I'm so excited. Uh, One of my best buddies from my zookeeping days is here to talk to us uh, all about hornbill and hornbill behavior because he worked with them. And so although we met in the hoofstock barn and had a lot of fun just training and and working with the animals that had hooves and horns and all that, uh, he went on to become a really awesome bird keeper and actually bird manager uh, in a zoo. And so he's very knowledgeable and I'm just, yeah, anyways, it's awesome. All right, well, let's welcome him in. And so I'm super excited to introduce our surprise guest, Mr. Andy Van Lan, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? 
Good. Happy yeah. that you're here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for, for joining us. Yeah, it only took me, what, two and a half years to ask you on my podcast? <laughs> you just don't have enough birds on the podcast. That's the only thing I know about, so... I well, it's true, and one of our goals this year is to get more birds and reptiles on there and speak with more uh, experts like yourself that have actually worked with hornbills. And when Chris and I discussed doing hornbills a few weeks ago, I instantly thought of you. I don't know if that's a compliment or not, but I think it's a compliment. <laughs> and I texted you and said, "Andy, I think you worked with hornbills." Is there anything cool I should know about them? And they're so cool that he couldn't text me back. He had to call me, I think, like two or three times. And I, I'm a, yeah, I'm I, went, a in, I went into full stalker mode. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And so, anyways, um, yeah, it was awesome when you when you when you were on the phone. You were telling me the stories about the horns bills that you worked with, and you sounded like a, a kid at Christmas time. You were. So excited to be sharing with me this awesome story. And that's when I was like taking notes because I was gonna share 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 it with our share it with our guests on the podcast. And I said, No, I think you should tell the story. And Andy, I know you didn't work with the great hornbill, but you worked with a couple other species. So I'm gonna turn the tables to you and have you share with our guests why we should love hornbills in general. Well, thank you for that introduction. I'm a, a former uh, bird keeper and former zoological manager of birds. So I've been working with birds for my entire career in various different ways. And uh, hornbills are some of my favorite birds to work with. Uh, they're just extremely charismatic and just colorful. And, and so there's big ones and small ones, and they have similar behaviors. All they have a you know, a lot of different things that they do depending upon their size and where they're from, whether from Africa or Asia. The favorite species that I ended up working with uh, is the Blythe's hornbill. Uh, they are a very big, they're, they're, they can be similar looking to a great hornbill if your listeners kind of Google side-by-side -side pictures, but the, the Blythe's hornbill is what I worked with. They're, they're fantastic they have uh, hornbills, the large hornbills have what's called a cask on the top of their bills, C-A-S-Q-U-E. And scientists don't exactly know what its purpose is. There's been, I've heard different hypotheses. Uh, one is that it can act as a kind of a sound chamber, like a reverberation chamber so that they can yell really loud in the, in the forest uh, so that their other conspecifics can hear them. Um, but these guys have fascinating breeding behaviors and fascinating uh, training yes. behaviors. Yes. Normally we talk about behavior a little later in the podcast, but I think I, I wanted to open with this to get people excited because when I started reading about some of their courtship and breeding behaviors. I had no idea. It's super fascinating. So can you tell us? Yeah. About that? So something that's pretty unique in birds is that the female finds a nest cavity, usually in a decaying tree or a dead tree. And there, it has to be, you know, for these big hornbills it has to be a pretty big cavity that they can find. So that's a challenge for them, mature, mature growth forests and habitat destruction. 
but they, uh, the female will find this big nest cavity. And when she finds a suitable one, she will enter into it and they will, uh, male and the female, the pair will work together to, they call it mudding up the hole. So they take a mixture of mud and gross enough uh, feces and just makes it into like a sticky paste. And they basically close up the entire hole behind her. So she's in the cavity, no claustrophobia here. And there's only a very small space for her to just stick the tip of her bill out. And that enables the male to feed her. So the entire time she stays in that cavity, the entire time she lays eggs and she sits on the eggs, she raises For the months, chicks. right? Yeah, yeah. At the, the zoo that I worked at, um, when we had these two hornbills, they were named Samson and Delilah. Uh, the male is bright orange. I know you guys can't see me on video, but I have bright orange hair. So we were really bonded, uh, me and, me and Samson. <laughs> And then Delilah has all black feathers with some beautiful blue uh, skin around the eyes. So, yeah, that pair that I work with, Samson and Delilah, yes, Delilah every year would stay in that nest cavity. And ours was artificial, kind of a tree that was made out of uh, gunite. I don't know. It's kind of like a zoo exhibit substance, kind of like cement can make fake stuff out of it and she would stay in there for two and a half months so you know that's a big big chunk of the year where she doesn't come out to eat or go to the bathroom or anything she's just in there no she does not he's a hundred percent responsible for her survival and uh it was very he's just very diligent you know the male that i worked with he was a great mate he took, he, uh, he relished his feeding duties. He would always feed her before he ate anything. So he was a pretty, pretty good, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Is that how it goes with you and John? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I actually am relating here a little bit to these hornbills because the last trimester of my pregnancy, I pretty much holed up in my room with Netflix and <laughs> John would slip in there, uh, once a day to bring me ice cream and then leave quickly. <laughs> Yeah, so, so this is, I feel like this bit, uh, is a very similar yeah. relationship. Mm-hmm. I think he would yeah. feed himself a bowl of ice cream first, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't oh, think I would good. get the first bowl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was really cool to watch and to and to see and, you know, to hatch out. And, the, and when the female, when the eggs hatch, she just continues to feed the chicks in there. And then they grow strong enough. And basically, when they're ready to fledge... Or, you know, what that word means is just leaving the nest ready to fly or becoming more independent. Then they all kind of burst out together as a big family. And it's it's a cool thing to see. Uh, they can have, you know, in Bly's, uh, the typical clutch or the amount of eggs was, I think, like five or six chicks. And they're not small birds. So it was pretty amazing. Real tight in there at the end. Yeah. Um, imagine. <laughs> when they're, when they're growing, I can't even, I can't even imagine what it was like being in there with that. No, no claustrophobia whatsoever. Um, but yeah, one of the challenges as one of the challenges as, as zookeepers that we had to deal with is that as nice as Samson was for most of the year, 
he became a territorial guy when his lady was in her nest cavity. And, you know, certainly none of us can blame him. He's just doing what evolution uh, programmed him to do to uh, protect that area. And he was perfectly capable of protecting that area. Um, so yeah, you would go in there to service the exhibit, which just means to clean up, you know, take the old food out, uh, put new food in and you would get attacked. Uh, you know, he would fly down to the ground and try to bite at your legs. He would, uh, we had bamboo in there and he would fly to the bamboo right at your head level, grab the bamboo and kind of peck at you. And if you, the bill is, gosh, in that species, it's almost as big as my arm, the, my forearm, you know, it's, it's not, it's not a insignificant uh, weapon that they've got there. So they could cause some serious damage to you. Did he ever hurt any keepers? Uh, he did. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly, you know, just some bruises or uh, wounded pride, mostly. But uh, I was, there was, yeah, I, one of my, I went, well, that reminds me one of the, one of my biggest nemesis at the zoo was a rooster that I worked with. And <laughs> also, and then those darn Muscovy ducks we used to work with. Do you remember those, Andy? What were their name? Uh, Huey, Huey and Dewey, Dewey, very creatively. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> I was always like, if they kill me, throw me in an exhibit with like a different animal. So I, I looked. Tougher. I don't want to go down by either a rooster or Muscovy <laughs> ducks. So I couldn't even imagine a blind hornbill. Uh, that's, that's, yeah, you don't want to be on the wrong side no, of that. No. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, you know, as a, as a manager and as a keeper, we really had to troubleshoot because this is obviously, this is not good for the keepers and it's not good for him too, these negative interactions, uh, the birds. So, you know, we troubleshooted and we uh, came up with a operant conditioning plan to station train this bird went during the uh, servicing of the exhibit. Uh, I'm sure you've talked about that at some point on your podcast, but as a refresher, it's station training can mean using operant conditioning or a positive reinforcement to get a bird or an animal to stay in one place in the exhibit um, that's desi- designated through training so that they stay there and they're not aggressing you while you're serving servicing the exhibit. And how you do that is you try to get a reinforcer that's more reinforcing to him than attacking a keeper, which is a challenge. <laughs> sure. So especially during that time the, of year. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, Cause you know, just that chasing some, uh, a human out of the exhibit, that's very reinforcing to him. So you got to pick something right. even better. So these, these hornbills are, they're omnivorous. I believe um, the, the majority of their diet is fruit. So that's the majority, but they will take small mice or lizards, you know, pretty omnivorous bird. But Samson loved his fuzzy mouse. So the fuzzy mouse, meaning a small mouse. Uh, he loved that. It was very reinforcing to him. So we started up a protocol so that he had to stay on one branch and we trained him to stay there while we were servicing the exhibit. And if he did that, 
successfully than he got two fuzzy mice. And that was very reinforcing to him. And as soon as he got his mice, he'd take them down into his throat pouch. You can see pictures of the big kind of throat pouch if you take a look. And he would immediately fly over to the hole and feed the first one to Delilah. And then he'd he'd keep the second one down himself. That's precious. I love that story. Yeah, yeah. He's a good bird. He's a good bird. What a good boy, Samson. True love. He was a a good. Yeah. I (laughs) Give you fuzzy mouse there, Angie. Yes. And on top of my ice cream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, There's no no greater love than the gift of a fuzzy mouse. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, that's so. Well, and, and when Andy first started telling me this story over the phone a couple of days ago. He He's being a little humble on the podcast, but he told me that this was his biggest training success as for his throughout his career because it was so important for the animal's health, for the keeper's health, and it was just such a rewarding experience. And Andy trained a lot of different animals, so from rhinos to takins to... Uh, goats, where we started in the goat yard. Remember the good old days? So for him sure to do. tell me that this was his like, yeah. So for Andy to tell me this was like his Emmy winning training moment really <laughs> mean, meant, meant a lot to me yeah. because uh, as a keeper, you have those moments behind the scenes where an animal you've been working with uh, using positive reinforcement for days, months, weeks, years even. And you have this breakthrough and, and you do, you, you feel like you want to win an Emmy, but really at the end of the day, everybody's like, Oh good. You're just doing your job. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think it's such a great story. So of course, training any animal or especially for Andy, these hornbills is super rewarding, but Andy, can you touch a little bit on hornbill breeding under human care and, and why, that is so critical and how unique and cool that you even got to work with them in a zoo. Sure. Yeah. I think uh, one of the biggest challenges with breeding hornbills, the large hornbills is they're ter- they're very territorial, you know, as we've just been discussing with people, but also with other birds and they're large. So they need a large space. So what that means is they typically are not going to work very well in any kind of a mixed species exhibit because they're capable of hurting smaller birds or other smaller animals. So they kind of have to have their own huge exhibit to themselves. And for a lot of zoos, that can be a real challenge, you know, to just have two birds in a large exhibit. Um, it, it can be difficult to do. So, and then you run into the additional challenge of you've got a lot of different species of large hornbills. So that being said, the more species there are that you're trying to work with, the less number of each individual species in the North American population, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, you just kind of, if you want to have a healthy breeding population, then you kind of have to focus maybe on one or two species. You can't have all these different ones. And then there might be 10 of this one in the country and 15 of this one in the country. So you kind of have to focus on certain species. And then they're also a long-lived bird. So when they're long-lived and you've got a great breeding pair and they can pump out five chicks a year, 
and then they become overrepresented in the, the population very quickly. And you just can't have those, those genes continuing to flood into a smaller population because then you'd have a lot of inbreeding. So I think those are some of the big challenges. Um, the pair that I worked with, uh, kind of cool, they ended up getting uh, sent over to Germany. They went to a zoo wow, okay. near, near Hamburg, uh, Germany. Awesome. So That's Samson awesome. and Delia are there now? As far as I know, yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. And didn't you say that uh, our listeners can see a picture of them if they go to? Yeah, yeah. Funny enough, if you just search uh, Blythe's Hornbill uh, and you go to the old trusty Wikipedia, you'll see the actual <laughs> Samson and Delilah there. Cute. Oh. Oh, Chris just pulled up the picture. Oh, they're beautiful. Well, Andy, thank you so much for popping into the podcast. I can't believe this is your first time giving us amazing bird stories and bird facts. Uh, but hopefully you'll want to come back again and talk about some other species. What are some birds you would like to see us talk about? Well, I am kind of an anomaly in the aviculture world because I love parrots. Uh, my favorite bird in the entire world is the hyacinth macaw. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's just the most beautiful and fascinating bird on the planet. Um, a lot of keepers don't necessarily, or zoo managers don't necessarily like working with parrots or citizens for various reasons, but you know, there, there's that, that, that could be a whole podcast, you know, in, in and of itself, but <laughs> I am definitely a parrot nerd and I love them. So, uh, yeah, that's, I'd be happy to come back and talk about them with you. Awesome. Awesome. I was lucky enough to get to work with tequila many years ago and she was a wonderful double yellow headed Amazon. And that's where I fell in love with citizens. And, uh, yeah, she taught me a lot as a keeper and, uh, yeah, so I am, I've been holding off on them kind of like how I'm holding off on zebras. Obviously, zebras are my first love. But uh, if, as far as birds go, citizens are right up there. And But when we do get to them, we'll definitely have you back yeah, and yeah. sharing. I know you have a lot of parrot stories for us that you can share. And I just really appreciate you talking to us today about hornbills. And it's always it's always nice to tell zookeeping stories. Yeah, so. yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's awesome. Thank you guys. I had fun and you guys keep at it. You're doing an awesome job. I'm a fan of the, the show. So keep after it and uh, great work. Thanks, Andy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. That was awesome, Angie. Thanks for thanks for asking him to come on. Yes, he's great. Uh, he has a lot of other stories, too. So we'll have to bring him back on the podcast when we talk about citizens or mm -hmm. other birds. Uh, like I said, I've been saving that 
citizen podcast. I don't know for a rainy day or what. Just yeah. uh, I, I don't know if I can do him justice. I think there's some of that as well. But yeah, Andy will be great to talk to, and he's 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 a lot of fun. He's one of my one of my very very close friends. I, yeah, we need to open up that the floodgate because I I want to talk about the kakapo, but we need to talk about some other parrots too. So <laughs> we're gonna get on it. We're gonna get on. I it. know we might have to have a whole parrot podcast, right? Uh, or hornbill with uh, sixty three species, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah, there's a lot of them. Well, speaking of that, so the great hornbill or, or hornbills, okay, all belong to the class of aves, which are the birds. So you're talking about ten thousand species. Now the order is Buserotiformes. So that includes the hornbills, ground hornbills, the hoopos, and wood hoopos. So things you learn of different <laughs> orders of, of animals. Yeah. Now the family of hornbills is Buceratidae. And it's interesting. The scientific name is Greek. So what it means is the shape of the bill, Buceros, is means cow horn. So mm, you can okay. kind of see it. You can kind mm-hmm. of see it a little bit, especially yeah, with that cask curve. up top. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You said, what, 62 species, around 15 genre. I mean, you're going sub-Sahara Africa all the way to like the Philippines, Solomon Islands, mm-hmm. where you find hornbills. This one's really cute. The smallest species is the black dwarf hornbill. It's dark. Three and a half. I looked it up. I actually Googled the picture. It's so cute. Three and a half ounces. You know, it, it's a it's a foot in length. So still big. It's not mm-hmm. like a little songbird, but for hornbills it, it is. And then the southern ground hornbill is the largest. The, the the great hornbill that we're talking about is up there, but this one weighs a little bit heavier, eight pounds. Right. And that's and almost that's an African species, and that's the one yeah. John got all excited. Like, you have to cover it. You have to cover it. You have I to know. cover it. And John was telling me uh, when they would do training with the ground hornbills or just in general, they when they would get food, they would, like, parade it around and, like, show it off. Like, show it to you. Like, look what I got. <laughs> look what I got. Which is just – I don't know. You think of that behavior like maybe in cats yeah. or dogs or something. Yeah. But, yeah, his I really haven't seen him light up about an animal like that recently that we've covered and he was yeah so yeah we'll have to put that we'll have to put ground bill on the list for sure all right let me let me ask you this question there's a little disney trivia for pip and also for our good friend jungle jordan who's a big disney fanatic what is the name of the lion king character that is a red billed hornbill Ooh, i don't know i'm very bad with names i should uh the Lion King? You know who I'm talking about, right? Like he's the advisor to the to the king. Yeah. I sh- no, I I mean I'll, he guides I'll, Simba. Hashtag, hashtag mom brain. No, no, it's okay. You're not a Disney fanatic like that. I, I'm sure Jordan's screaming at the radio. I know. Probably most people are. Starts with a Z. Zazu? Zazu, yes. Yeah. Yes. There you go. There you go. It's, it's been a, a while. I know. Sorry. Uh, yeah. I, I, uh, I, I have to get back into it because my boys are starting to get old enough. The last time they watched Lion King, they were a little bit nervous in the beginning. So yeah, I want to okay, show them the okay. newer one. And then I cannot wait until they're old enough to take them to the Broadway. I want to do Lion King on Broadway. Yes, the musical. But I think the they musical, need to be yeah. like 10 or 11 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, a little bit more. Mm-hmm. A little bit more. Well, there you go. That that was for, that for Pip. So, all right. The genus of the great hornbill 
is Boosros. Okay, remember there's 15 of them, so this one's specific, the Boosros. So you do have the rhinoceros hornbill, the, the rufous hornbill, mm-hmm. and then the great hornbill, which their scientific name is Boosros bicornis. Single species now, they used to divide them into two subspecies. I mean, the ones near the Himalayas are like much bigger. Okay. Then the ones more southern, but they are just now one species, I think, with, with some DNA. Now, the evolution of hornbills is, is it's not very in-depth. It, it's they, they don't have a lot of fossils. We do know a little bit about it. So, again, birds be, emerged during the Jurassic period 160 million years ago. Been around a long time. The pelicaniforms, which we've talked about, the the like the pelicans, mm-hmm. I think the shoe bill was part of that, emerged at the end of the Cretaceous period, 66 million years ago, which makes sense. Last great mass extinction. So that's when these really started to take off and became more modern birds. Now, what we know of hornbills, 35 million years ago, there was some ground hornbill, like John wanted us to talk about. They call it Protobusteros. Probably the very first one, a carnivorous bird. They just don't have a lot of fossils. So they believe they emerged in Africa and then they spread out through Africa and into Asia. So that's kind of where they they go. There's no data as far as when the great hornbill emerged, but you can imagine tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years ago is when this species uh, emerged at least, if not longer. Okay, so so that's what we know of of the hornbills. Very interesting fact. Can you think of another bird species in South America that's very similar? It's it's quiz mom brain. Sorry, Ange. <laughs> well, is it a toucan? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yes. Toucan. Because when I was okay. looking at, at through photos and uh, a couple toucan photos came up, and so I was wondering how closely related they were to the toucan. Not at all. Not very closely related. Interesting. It is. It is an, it, the toucans with the very large bills. Very a great example of convergent evolution, where two different species or types of birds have emerged uh, with similar ecological niches, even though they're on opposite ends of the planet. Uh, so toucans are in Central and South America. They developed these large bills. Very similar feeding patterns, you know, things like that. And they both nest in cavities. So we'll maybe do toucan in, in a year or something, you know, and go back to the horn. Yeah, I, well, and I've spent a lot of time in Central and South America. I should have seen a, a toucan, but I never did. Uh, not in the wild. And then when I was thinking about Africa, I w- looked up African hornbill species that are at Kruger National Park, which I was just a few years ago and I didn't see any hornbills and they actually have the red-billed hornbill, the southern yellow-billed hornbill, African gray hornbill, southern ground hornbill. I could have seen one in wild and I didn't. Uh, they have the trumpeter hornbill, the crown hornbill. So there's a ton of species. I, I, I just need to go out with more of a birding expert and it was a quick trip too. So that uh, I didn't get to spend enough time out in the field, no, but I'm kicking no. myself. I'm like, oh, that would have been amazing to uh, to see some of those in the wild, especially after watching all these videos right. of wild 
great hornbills doing their thing. Uh, it was, yeah, I'm pumped. Well, that's why, you know, thank you to Jesse. I mean, get turning me on into bird watching. Like you do, you have a list. Jesse has a list when we go out. He's like, I want to see this bird today. And he usually doesn't because he's out so much and he's, <laughs> yeah. he's trying to find the elusive one. So when you do go out and, and see them, like I saw that every time I go to Sanctuary Mountain, I'm like, okay, I'm going to see a caca today. That's all I care about. Or my robins, because they're always perched above my head. You know, last time I was out, I had the New Zealand fantail dancing around me. So this weekend when I go out, you know, I'm going to go and try to find a new bird species, look it up and identify it. But yeah, that would be really cool. Speaking of South America, if you would have lived here a few million years ago, there's a bird you probably would not have ever wanted to run into. <laughs> so I haven't done my 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 ancient animals in a while. Well, at, yeah, after talking to Andy, I'm thinking a great horn of breeding male great hornbill. <laughs> well, the, yeah, yeah, that's true too. The, the, the regret, well, this thing must have been really aggressive because. The museum there on Florida's campus has one of these. I don't know if you remember those when you go through the fossil collection and you look. Oh, I can picture it, but I, I, I don't yes, know the name. That beak. Yeah, yes. That's what made me think of yes. this. The hornbills did. They were called terror birds. Yes, the terror bird. Mm-hmm. Yes. These stood almost 10 feet tall, had these razor sharp, massive beaks. They're called Pharosaurids, look it up, look it up, carnivorous birds, their beaks could sever the spinal cord of a horse with one blow. Wow. They're so strong. That's crazy. They emerged over 60 million years ago and survived until about two and a half million years ago. I don't know what not wiped them out, but thank goodness they're gone because could you imagine seeing this 10-foot dinosaur really you know relic chasing you around wanting to eat you like no thank you no thank you i'll have to take uh, a picture the next time i go to the museum yeah and post it on we'll mm-hmm. post it on instagram yeah i remember that it's there it's there now one of the things andy did say is is these birds are are, are long living so under human care they can live up to 50 but they think in the wild they could live up to 40 years so you know, one of these longer living birds, mm-hmm. different physiology. I mean, Andy, Angie did a good job in the beginning kind of describing this. One of the things I found interesting is their neck vertebrae. Two of them, are, they're fused to support the weight of that bill. Well, yeah, they're the only birds where the first and second vertebrae, the atlas and the axis, I always teach that to my physiology students, is it's alphabetical order. So C1 is atlas with a T. And C2 is axis, and they're in alphabetical order. And that's how you remember them. You're welcome. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I have all these little tricks. But anyways, but yeah, Mm -hmm. they're the only species of or family of birds where the first and second are fused. And researchers don't know, but they think this probably enables more stability or more of a platform for carrying the bill and then the cask. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And alongside that, they also have a thicker neck than a lot of other birds, just in general. Like uh, they have uh, strongly developed muscles around these fused vertebra. So. Yeah. Yeah. A little physiology. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, speaking of the casks, I mean, we should talk about it. Like we did say it, they're, they're not very heavy, but again, you know, from a normal bird, normal bird from say like a 
even a crow. I mean, a crow's got a big beak for a bird, but if you think of songbirds and, and others, the beaks aren't that massive. Right. And they just, yeah, they have a really long curved beak. And then of course that cask on top of their head, which is just, just impressive. It's very, very prominent. It's bright yellow and it's basically U-shaped when viewed from the front. Uh, and the top is concave. And their name, their Latin name is bicornus or two-horned because basically it kind of curves up and almost looks like two bananas, long bananas on each side for lack of better, <laughs> better uh, description. And there's a little bit different coloration in the cask between male and female hornbills. And the female, the back or the posterior portion of the cask is going to be like a little bit more reddish, whereas the underside, the back underside of the males is going to be black. So it looks heavy and I mean, obviously Mm -hmm. it is adding weight to a bird that needs to fly, but it's made up of these thin walled, like hollow cells. So Mm -hmm. it's not super, super heavy, Um, except for there is one species that's really unique. The helmeted, uh, the helmeted hornbill actually has, it's, it's not hollow, the, the cask. It's filled with what they call like an ivory substance, which is mm-hmm. it's not it's not ivory like we think of. But unfortunately, this ivory-like dense substance that's found in the helmeted hornbill's cask. Say that three times. Helmeted hornbill's yeah. cask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, is highly sought after, and they are critically endangered. Right, it is. It is I'm talking about conservation. Well, I read some of the things like I, I was like, okay, what's the purpose of this? Mm-hmm. Why do they have this? They they say it can act as like a counterweight. So when they're hammering, like, especially when we're talking about like hollows for nesting, Mm -hmm. they, it helps them. They think the large beak has to do with their diet. So like Andy talked about what they eat, they're fruitivores. a, A lot of them, they eat a lot of fruit. So that bill, that large bill helps them. Then they talked about sexual selection and pressures where the males with larger casks are more sexually mature, right? Mm-hmm. So they're selected more often. So again, with them, the size does matter where a larger cask, the females are like, Ooh, you know, you're, you're healthier. You're more robust. I'm going to mate with you. So my offspring are healthy and robust. So that's where they think this cask developed in, in the great hornbill, you know, and probably other hornbills to, uh, you know, make them so big. Mm -hmm. And then getting a little ahead of myself with behavior is males will often butt their casks, say that three times, butt their casks, (laughs) uh, during breeding season as a show of dominance and, uh, to compete for Mm -hmm. female. So bigger is better in that, in that, in that term too. But if you haven't already, you should go to our show notes and check out a photo of these great hornbills. So Chris and I are describing the cask, and I don't think we're doing it justice because it's really, it's beautiful. Uh, it's a, a, it really is beautiful. It's an interesting uh, headpiece and, uh, and definitely has some importance, but it still has researchers scratching their head exactly on why. But what is also very unique about hornbills in general, which John mentioned when we started talking about mm-hmm. ground hornbills, are their eyelashes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Really long, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so... And the gray hornbill, the eyelashes are, in my opinion, they're they're pretty, uh, but 
average more or less. But the ground hornbill, that's what John, he's like, you got to Google that. And so I, sure enough, I did. And these eyelashes on the ground, Southern ground hornbill, they look like the fake ones that, that, right, that right. women will wear and that are even more than that, like thicker than that. They're just impressive. So I, I thought that was really cool because all the hornbills have them and they're definitely more prominent um, than other species. In fact, I don't know if other species have eyelashes. So it might be another thing that sets sets them in the in the in a unique category compared to other families of birds. Yeah, and you think where they live, I mean, kind of like drier, dustier climate. So help, you know, eyelashes help keep stuff out of our eyes, any dust and dirt where the great hornbills in these like forest, tropical sure. slash boreal or whatever that is, higher elevation forest. So yeah, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Now, Andy already talked a little bit about diet. I mean, they're, they're specialists in frugivores. They eat a lot of fruit. They can use metabolize that low protein that's in fruit. It's by far their favorite food. But like he said, they do eat other things. So great hornbills as well will eat snakes, rodents, insects, lizards, things like that. Some of the great hornbills, they, they will specialize in fruit. So the Indian ones, like, They'll specialize in figs and they have to eat a ton per day. A lot of food, up to 33% of their body weight per day in fruit to uh, survive. So they had an instance where during one meal, a great hornbill ate over 150 figs. Like just, (laughs) I read that. I'm like, I like figs. That's a, like my, that's a lot. That's a lot. That's my six year old with plums yeah. every night. Dad, he yeah. takes like three or four plums. I'm like, dude. Ugh. Well, Chris, what I found fascinating is that their diet is a little different between breeding and non-breeding season. So in non-breeding season, that's when they're eating all those figs, 150 in one sitting uh, and focusing a lot on fig trees. But during the breeding season, the great hornbills will forage on higher fat fruits and nuts. And so they're known to eat nutmeg and other lipid rich fruits that are available throughout the year, but they're more available during breeding season and higher in fat, uh, which is probably helpful uh, for the female uh, that the male is taking care of and also for himself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she just, she just sit there. Well, we're going to get to that. Yeah. So before we get to that real quick, no real predators for this bird. They, they're up at the canopies, pretty well protected, except humans. Humans do hunt them, hunt them for meat, their feathers, their casks. So that is, that is their main threat is us, you know, now with habitat destruction that, that has helped drive the great hornbill towards extinction. So we'll get to that in conservation, but behavior reproduction, always fascinating with birds. I know Andy covered some of it, but what else is out there for these animals? Great hornbills are active during the day and night searching for food. Uh, They don't migrate. And what is super fascinating is I was watching videos of them flying and they have those, and they have that long wingspan, but they're such a big bird that the wing beats are really heavy and you can hear them flying. And some people say that the sound of a great hornbill flying is like a, a train starting up. Like it's so loud because mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. so big and 
heavy, for lack of better terms. Um, they're a pretty social bird. Uh, they're either going to be hanging out. And in regards to their social behavior, great hornbills are usually seen hanging out with small groups. Of course, they're breeding pair during breeding season. Uh, but they will congregate in large communal roosts, uh, especially at nighttime, that might contain hundreds of individuals if the population's that big. Uh, but otherwise, they'll just hang out with a few um, a few great hornbills and small parties and or a breeding pair. So a semi-social bird, and definitely they have that communal roosting behavior. And as far as her vocalization goes, oh, I'm kicking myself. I was going to make Andy do a vocalization because yep. he was telling me that when uh, Samson would feed Delilah the, the fuzzy mouse, he was so proud of himself that he would do this very loud vocalization. And I told Andy I was going to make him do it on the podcast, but I forgot because I was just so enthralled by his story and so happy to see him. Uh, but he, he also, for the record, said he would not do that. He said he would just laugh in my face. <laughs> he said, yeah. because yeah, yeah. they make these really loud, crackling, roaring sounds. And so here's an example, I guess, of a roaring, almost like a barking sound. That's pretty crazy compared to a songbird. Right. Yes, <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I guess uh, when individuals all roost together in a tree, like in the evening, that it can get really loud uh, as they as these trees kind of become like information hubs where they're just going back and forth with this crackling and roaring type sound uh, when they're roosting. And then I know Andy talked a little bit about the tree stuff and locking her away. And we have some good jokes about that. But Anything you got to add to that? Because that is so iconic of the, this this species, this family of birds. It is an incredible strategy. It's so unique. It really is. I mean, first and foremost, they're monogamous for the most part. And they will like to build their nests in the same tree each year. So from a conservation point of view, you're taking away their tree. That's not super helpful for them Uh because they depend on these old growth forests for the most part. But they're going to breed between the months of February and May. And in general, males will compete for females by butting into each other while females watching and seeing who's stronger and has a bigger cask. And when male and female start to court each other, they'll make really loud duets. Uh, the sound is, I guess, like a, a coke sound or something like that. And the male will start it and the female will start to join in and they call in unison and they do roars and barks and they just have their, their beautiful, I'm sure it doesn't sound really beautiful on the, on the, the audio clip that we played. But if you're a, a hornbill, it's a beautiful noise that they sing together. And then after all of these courtships and rituals uh, and the great hornbills get together, uh, they will search for a nest or go back to the nest that they had used in the pre previous season. 
And then, yeah, they, as Andy mentioned, they basically uh, use feces from both the male and the female and then mud to cover the entrance of the hole, confining the female in there. And it really is just so like a slit of her, uh, her bill will stick out. Uh, and I, I was reading that, and Andy didn't mention this, but in um, when hornbills are under human care, they'll sometimes use fruit too, like bananas. <laughs> so I guess that helps prov- provide the mushy, the mushy mud to seal her in there. And then the female just hangs out in there and the male feeds her uh, for about two months. The female great hornbill will lay and then incubate on average two eggs, one to two. And we didn't mention nutrition, but hornbills typically get all of their water from the fruit that they eat. So he doesn't have to bring her water. He just brings her food and she can get, get enough water from that. But she just stays in there and she she actually goes through a complete molt. So she loses all of her feathers and they all grow back while she's sitting there incubating these eggs. However, even though the great hornbill's nest cavity is made from feces, uh, she'll actually uh, use the, the hole to defecate, the slit to defecate outside. So she doesn't want to mess up her, her cavity too much, which that makes sense. So it's like when you were locked in your room, you used the restroom, I assume. <laughs> exactly. <healthy>. Exactly. <laughs> John brought you food and ice cream. Yeah. Yes. We, I, yep. I, luckily I have a bathroom in there, so I didn't have to like, I didn't <laughs> yeah. have to like stick my hiney out the door or anything. So that's yeah, good. God, yeah. uh, he loves me. He would have cleaned it up, but you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but what's really fascinating is this, um, in a different species of hornbill called, uh, the Rufus hornbill, which we talked a little bit about earlier, uh, other males, non-breeding males, will actually help feed the female oh. while she's incubating oh. her eggs. And I did not, I didn't get that kind of help. I wish I had other people. <laughs> other people yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Some, uh, some other, some other gentlemen bringing me other. Yeah, I don't of think ice John cream. would like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, actually, he probably yeah, wouldn't he probably mind because would. he he, yeah. he he doesn't always like to go out for those uh, yogurt runs late at night. I'd always yeah. crave frozen yogurt. Um, yeah. But yeah, so that's not in the Great Hornbill, but other ones, uh, she gets a lot of a lot of help. But the male works hard, and the male works so hard that he may actually exhaust himself taking care of the female during this process and die. So, so what does she do? That's my question. What does she do? Like she's toast. If she has no feathers, she's definitely toast. Right. So if he dies, if he doesn't bring her food and he dies because he's so exhausted, then she dies and her babies are, yeah. and her chicks that are in there growing die. So it's it's a really fascinating evolutionary strategy and I, I i wanted to read more on it i just i didn't have time so if we have any hornbill experts out there listening i mean I, I, no of course they're not gonna know the answer but it's just it's it's just a lot of trust and i mean i just your part you know here's this we, we talk about deadbeat dads or make jokes about deadbeat dads on the podcast well the hornbill is like the dad of the century in my book, right? I mean, my goodness. Oh, I'm sitting there thinking your husband's bringing you ice cream in the room and he's being Mr. Cassowary dad with your other two. <laughs> right, right. Get ready to lay the third egg that he's going to take care of Mr. Cassowary over there. Yeah, so it's just, it's just yeah, I know, really, yeah. really impressive. And I mean, but I do think John can maybe relate to the exhaustion part about taking care of. <laughs> um, although it's, it's all of us, right? We all take care of each other. Um, mm-hmm. 
but back to the great hornbill. So the egg incubation period is only about 38 to 40 days. And the chicks are hatched and they stay in there as like a family group for about five weeks. So then the male has to feed her and the chicks, right? So he's bringing even more food, the poor guy. Uh, and different than the Blythe's hornbills, which Andy t- uh, was talking about, in the great hornbill, the female will actually leave the cavity before the chicks. So when the chicks are about five weeks old, the female will leave. And for the next couple of weeks, as the chicks are growing, the male and the female will provide food for them because it's just, they need so much. And the young will actually reseal themselves back in there because the mom has broken out and opened up the hole. So the chicks, they have instinct to then cover the hole back up, which is just fascinating, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're Mm -hmm. only like five weeks old at this time. So then roughly around seven, eight, nine weeks of age, the great hornbill chicks will emerge and the parents continue to feed them until they're about 15 weeks old. So, and they're getting bigger and stronger and the parents just keep feeding them. And that's and both mom and dad. I mean, parents of the year yeah. over here. And yeah, when I forgot to mention too, that when the young are born, they don't have a cask. And so it slowly develops over time. And it becomes its prominent yellow, gorgeous, bicornous shape uh, when they're about five years old. And as you mentioned, Chris, earlier, that that's probably uh, helps them with breeding and knowing who is more mature and of breeding age and things like that. Well, then looking at their conservation status, Angie, like you mentioned a few others, these are listed as vulnerable population, 13,000 up to 27,000 decreasing, I mean, a lot going on there in, in Southeast Asia and, and parts of India where, you know, losing forests and local poverty. I mean, a cask I read can fetch up to $90 American or a single tail feather, $15 in India. So, you know, there is a lot of pressures on this species, you know, as they head towards extinction. So any organizations out there fighting for them? Yes, Chris. This week, I want to highlight the IUCN Hornbill Specialist Group. They can be found at uh, IUCNHornbills.org. And they also have um, a public Facebook page that you can join and to learn more about hornbills. And there's some beautiful photos that people and videos that people post on there. So definitely check out the Facebook Hornbill Specialist Group for public engagement. And what this group does is they're hornbill specialists around the world, so they could probably answer a lot of our questions. And they use their combined knowledge and skill sets for evidence-based conservation actions of hornbills and, of course, of these really awesome old-growth habitats that a lot of them find themselves in. And to do this, the hornbill specialist group works with a lot of partners, a hornbill research foundation, uh, Disney's Animal and Science and Environment uh, foundation that gives back a lot of money to research. So just several groups, they all team up and work together to fight for the species in Asia and in Africa uh, by partnering up with stakeholders and scientists and do research and also help educate the public. So check out the Hornbill Specialist Group. Uh, their website's beautiful. You can learn more about hornbills and see 
different photos of the different species and of course learn about their status as far as are they threatened or endangered things like that mm-hmm. yep nope yep that's good see people out there fighting 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 for these animals one thing you can do conservation tip of the week you can participate in bird counts so one thing it's something i'm picking up from jesse it, there's a lot of resources out there uh they're like the National Audubon Society's annual Christmas bird count is one that goes on. The Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology has Project Feeder Watch. They also have really good bird watching apps that I use. Merlin ID is one. Even Australia, BirdLife Australia has created the Aussie Backyard Bird Count app. So wherever you are in the world, you can participate in bird counts. You can look up in your country, if there's apps or anything you can do. So when you're out, you can go and pull up the app and say, Oh, I, I, you know, I think a pip all the time. She sees Robins. You can go in there and click Robin, 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 Robin. Oh, oh, I don't know what that is. Let me pull up this ID app and you can identify the bird. Amazing stuff out there now at our fingertips. So there you go. You can help, you can help these researchers, you know, see where these birds are and have some fun doing it. So, yeah. Awesome. There's a really fun species. I, uh, it just makes me want to cover more birds, especially that ground hornbill, right? And I just appreciate everyone tuning in and especially my buddy Andy uh, for coming on. So thank a big thank you to him and a thank you to everyone out there listening. And then stay tuned next week for another episode. Take care. Bye-bye. Listen, learn, share, join the movement at allcreaturespod.com With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at luckylandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.